Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 193, Review of Sanders' The Deep Things of God, Part 2. In this second part of my review, I'm going to discuss what Dr. Sanders says about prayer, what his own view about the Trinity is, and what I learned by reading his other books. What you'll find if you know evangelicals well is that when they're in Bible mode, when they're thinking along the lines of the Bible, they actually think like Unitarians. They don't think that Jesus is God. They think God is someone else, someone whom Jesus serves and loves. And they think of the one true God as the Father, generally not as the Trinity. Even Dr. Sanders, sometimes, I claim, thinks like a Unitarian Christian. And that's because he's a Bible-oriented evangelical. Here's what he says about prayer in chapter 13. Not everybody experiences the doctrine of the Trinity as something helpful to their prayers. Quite the contrary, many Christians are getting along just fine saying prayers to God without a single Trinitarian thought in their heads. And when a well-meaning theologian asks them to take the Trinity into account, things fall apart. They thank the Father for dying on the cross, they thank Jesus for sending His only Son, and they suddenly realize that they have no clear ideas whatever about the Holy Spirit. Befuddled, they retreat to just praying to God in general, but find no comfort there because now they can't imagine what God means in Trinitarian terms and wonder who they've been talking to all these years. So here is the theology quiz that always comes up when we start thinking about the Trinity and prayer. Whom do I pray to? The Father? The Son? The Spirit? God? The Trinity? All of the above? Let me interrupt here for a second. That analysis is spot on. Now back to Dr. Sanders. Here is the theologically correct answer. Pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Most New Testament prayers follow that pattern. There are a few prayers to Jesus in the New Testament, and as far as I know, no recorded prayers to the Holy Spirit. What Dr. Sanders doesn't say there, but which should jump right out at you and slap you in the face and make you wake up, is there's no prayer anywhere in the Bible to the Trinity. Almost all the prayer is directed to the Father, although arguably there's a few instances of prayer to the Son. This is exactly what you'd expect if Unitarianism was true. If Trinitarianism was true, you'd expect the prayer to be somewhat evenly distributed between the three because they're all equally great, and you'd definitely expect prayer to be to the Trinity. Why don't you see that? Well, in my view, it's because they're not Trinitarians. They think the one God is the Father. You know who argued strenuously that while most New Testament prayer is to the Father, still one can pray to the Son as well? Socinus the guy who gave his name to the Socinian movement, those Unitarian Protestants in the 15, 16, 1700s, in places like Poland and later in England. Even though there's no example of prayer to the Holy Spirit, 
Dr. Sanders proceeds to reason backwards. Well, because we all know, right, the Holy Spirit is a divine person, co-equal with the other two, so it must be okay to pray to the Holy Spirit too. So yes, of course, you can pray to the Holy Spirit. But anyway, why not stick with the scriptural pattern? Indeed. But it's a Unitarian pattern. I've already given plenty of criticisms of the book, I think it protects you from things that it shouldn't, and I think it's mistaken in its core theology. But in the rest of this segment, I'm going to focus on factual errors, errors which are or should be indisputable. First, at least twice, Dr. Sanders says the first clearly Trinitarian creed is at Nicaea in the year 325. Absolutely not. You should read that creed. I go through the heart of it in my book. There's no mention of a triune God. In fact, it starts off, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. As I argue in my book, the first clearly Trinitarian creed, although not quite explicitly Trinitarian creed, is the Second Ecumenical Council 381. But you'll have to see the book for the argument. Second error is that the Bible clearly teaches the eternity of the Trinity, and so that it clearly teaches the eternity of the Son and the Spirit. No, it really doesn't. Even if you just look at the case for the pre-existence of the Son, that would establish at most that the Son already existed when creation occurred. Yeah, but was there any time before creation? Because the Bible doesn't clearly teach the eternity of the Son or the Spirit, a major leading Christian theologian and apologist like Tertullian in the first half of the 200s can come along and say, at first, God, that is the Father, was alone. And then, when the time was right, he extended out a portion of his substance, and he brings into existence the Logos. And then he extends out a further portion of his substance and brings into existence the Spirit. So the Father, according to Tertullian, and really according to most of the early Logos theologians, is literally older than the Son and the Spirit. Well, that shows you that it's not obvious that the Bible teaches this. Third mistake, Dr. Sanders claims it's obvious that there are three characters in the New Testament that Father, Son, and Spirit are all persons, or I would say selves. It is obvious. Jesus has a personal name, a proper name, Jesus. He has a mother. He's a man. To be a man, you have to be a person. The Father speaks to him. The Father is spoken to. The Father is the one God. The Father is a great and mighty self, according to the Old and New Testaments. God the Father is all-knowing, all-powerful, completely good. The Father is a person. The one God is the person, yes. The Holy Spirit? Not so clear. The Holy Spirit is spoken of in personal terms, as the helper and the advocate, and as knowing what to say when we pray and things like this. But the Holy Spirit is also talked about as if it were a force or something you could be baptized in, something that can be poured out, like a power that can be given. So it's not obvious that there are three characters. The Holy Spirit never interacts with the other two in a person-to-person -person sort of way. The Holy Spirit doesn't have conversations with the Father and with the Son. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a proper name. It's just God's Spirit. Okay, your spirit isn't supposed to be someone other than you. It's just you. It's like your inner aspect. It's like your soul, basically. So God's Spirit would just be not someone in addition to God, but just God's inner aspect, right? You might think that. Okay, so it's not obvious that there are three characters in the New Testament because it's not obvious that the Holy Spirit is a person. 
Some leading early historical people like Origen and Gregory of Nazianzus point this out, that Christians are still sort of mulling over what to make of the Spirit. Granted, from fairly early times, some people thought that the Holy Spirit was a self. That's true. Fourth mistake. Dr. Sanders holds the view that if God has multiple persons in God's self, then God would therefore not be bored or lonely or selfish because even apart from creation, he'd be able to give to someone else within him. So if God contains three selves, which seems to be his view, maybe that's sufficient that no one there is bored, etc. But he seems to infer from this that if God is a single self, then God will be bored or lonely or selfish or maybe all three of those. And that's a logical mistake. Just because being multipersonal is sufficient for not being bored or lonely or selfish, it wouldn't follow that being multipersonal is necessary for not being bored, lonely, or selfish. It's very easy to imagine a unipersonal God, a mighty self, who is not bored. I mean, eternally, he beholds his own splendor. He's not lonely. He doesn't need a friend. He's not a social creature like humans. No one designed God to like need company, nor would he be selfish if he just didn't create. It's kind of a pot shot against non-Trinitarian theologies, but it really doesn't go anywhere. Fifth mistake, this is discussing the evangelical writer Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer thinks, wow, why would God say, let us make man in our image? And why would there be a few other plurals in the Old Testament relating to God, unless this was a hint of the Trinity? And Sanders just reports this, and he fails to mention the interpretation that God is there addressing his heavenly counsel, what we would call his angels. Look in his study Bible, look at the notes on Genesis 1, let us make man in our image and our likeness. They will generally not say that this is one member of the triune God speaking to another member, nor will they even say that it's a hint of the Trinity, but they will probably say what I just said, that the assumption is that God is attended by a heavenly council, a heavenly court, and he's talking to them. It's not responsible to just pass this by and fail to mention this other contextual ancient interpretation. The last two mistakes also have to do with uncritically accepting claims of earlier writers. So in discussing Andrew Murray, the author of the book With Christ in the School of Prayer, bizarrely, Murray and following him, Sanders, suggests that it would be impossible for a Unitarian God, that is a unipersonal God, a mighty self, to hear and answer prayer. Murray writes, If God was only one person shut up within himself, there could be no thought of nearness to him or influence on him. But in God, there are three persons. When eternal love begat the Son, and when the Father gave the Son as the second person, a place next himself as his equal and his counselor, there was a way open for prayer and its influence in the very inmost life of deity itself. Seemingly, Sanders endorses this argument, but what's the difficulty? Why couldn't an all-loving, perfectly merciful, perfectly compassionate, single self be receptive to human prayer? I don't know. Murray doesn't even give a reason. He just says that being like that couldn't. Well, that's a bizarre claim. 
Again, a careless pot shot at Unitarian Christian theologies with no supporting argument, whatever. Look, if I claim that a Trinitarian God couldn't know that 2 plus 2 is 4, well, what? Really? Why? That's strange. Why would a person think that? Right, you should demand some answers there for me. You shouldn't just sit there and let me get away with it and say, oh, well, it's poor Trinitarians. It's poor dopes. Their God can't know that 2 plus 2 is 4. That's what Dale said. So similarly, if someone says that a unipersonal God, who is a single perfect self, couldn't hear and answer prayer, that's just a whopper out of the blue. Like, why would anybody think that? That's weird. But, you know, it's anti-Unitarian, so Sanders passes it along. Another mistake. This is a historical mistake. Sanders explicitly says that Irenaeus, the early church father, the early bishop, says that the Father, Son, and Spirit are a tripersonal God. He says, Irenaeus's point was that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one God who created man. No, that's mistaken, I'm sorry. Irenaeus everywhere asserts the one true God to be the Father. This occurs in many, many places in his writings, and generally he refers to the Creator as the Father. Now, true, he does think that God created through the Son and the Spirit. So the one God somehow uses the intermediate agency of the Logos and his Spirit in creation. And Irenaeus calls those things God's two hands. Right, but God is still the Father. God is the Father and not the Trinity in all of the creeds that Irenaeus reports as commonly used in the Christian world. And against the Gnostics and other groups, he's constantly asserting that the one God is the God of the Jews, which is the same one as the Father. True, he calls the Son God. He uses the term God and the term Lord of the Son. He thinks the pre-incarnate Son is active in the Old Testament, and he thinks the Son and the Spirit were the ones through whom the one God created. Yeah, but the one God is still the Father. Irenaeus never mentions or implies a triune God. He's a Unitarian although the kind of Unitarian who believes in a pre-existent Son and Spirit. Are they eternal, or did God speak or breathe them out at some point? That point is unclear, in my opinion, in Irenaeus. One could make a case that they're co-eternal, okay, but they're not the one God. The one God is the founding member of this triad. It's the Father. It's an anachronism, it's a mistake to say that Irenaeus believed in a triune God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, just what does Dr. Sanders think the Trinity formulas mean, and how does he defend their coherence? So as I went through this whole book, I was reading the whole book and taking notes and trying to figure out, well, what kind of Trinitarian is Dr. Sanders? And I've sorted the views into three self-Trinitarians, one self-Trinitarians, and Mysterians. And I noticed right away that he thinks that the triune God is a he. 
And in one place, he literally calls the triune God a person. On page 130 of his book, the last page of chapter 6, he says, The gospel is that God is God for us, that he gives himself to be our salvation. And then at the end of that paragraph, when God puts himself forward to be our salvation in person, who is this person? This God, who the gospel is, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right, so the who that God is, is the Trinity. The Trinity is a self, right? Although it's not standard to describe the triune God as a person, but that Sounds like that's what his view is. Naturally, as a Christian, he thinks God is a he. God is a someone, a somebody. God is a self, I would say. Right, I agree with him about that, that the one God is a self. But Trinitarians who think that the one God is a self, people like Karl Barth and Karl Rahner, usually then turn around and spin the persons, the quote persons of the Trinity, as something less than selves personalities, ways that God exists, and so on. So I was expecting Dr. Sanders to do that at some point. But he doesn't do that. He clearly thinks the Father and Son enjoy interpersonal fellowship with one another, and he puts the Spirit in there too, although you don't clearly see that in the New Testament. He seems to be like social Trinitarians, ones that I call three-self Trinitarians, in thinking that the persons of the Trinity really are persons, that is to say, selves, not human persons, all of them, but agents, intelligent beings, beings capable of friendship like you or me. So the Trinity is a self, the Father is a self, the Son is a self, the Spirit is a self. That seems to be his view. There are four selves there. It's not standard for Trinitarians to talk about four persons of the Trinity, So what gives? And given that the Father and Son and Spirit are supposed to be equally divine, which is something he presupposes, then why aren't those three gods? When people run into three-self Trinitarianism, the first thing they ask is always, but you've just posited three gods. You've got three different beings. Each one is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, etc. That's tritheism, right? Not monotheism. Well, what's Dr. Sanders' view? I actually expended a lot of effort to try to figure this out. Years ago, Dr. Sanders sent me a copy of some of his excellent comics, and he has one on the Trinity, and I went back and I read that whole thing again. And I realized that he's published a 2016 monograph, a book intended for the Systematic Theology Guild, maybe for college students, called The Triune God. It's part of a series called New Studies and Dogmatics. So I bought that and read that whole thing, too. I can't give a complete review of that book here. It's a very different book. It's interesting in some different ways. But the main thing I'll talk about right now is I was trying to figure out, does he think that God is one self or three selves at bottom? Or does he think that God is really four selves or three selves of one kind and one self of another kind? What's the deal? What is the Trinity? If we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we need to put on the table what those traditional formulas mean. If you say the Father's God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, what do you mean by that is God those three times? You mean they're parts of God, modes of God, aspects of God, personalities of God, that each one is a God? So now we've got three gods, or do they combine together to make the one God? There is no one doctrine of the Trinity. 
what there are are standard formulas and language that generally accompany some very vague ideas about what it means. When I tried to answer this question, taking copious notes on the whole book, highlighting the whole thing, sometimes it sounds like he thinks there are really just three selves there. But at other times, he says things that seem to imply that the Trinity is a self. Over and over again, he talks about God's self-revelation. God, that's the Trinity, the one God, and God self-reveals, then God is a self. So the Trinity is a self, right? You might think so. He uses this language constantly. On the other hand, sometimes he'll say things to the effect of the Father reveals himself through the Son and the Spirit. Okay, but who's the one God? Unitarians think the one God is the Father, and I agree that the Father reveals himself through his Son and his Spirit. But then do we really have one self, that is the Father and the Son and Spirit are ways the Father exists, something like that? Or do we have the Trinity being the one self, and Father, Son, and Spirit are like ways that that one Trinity lives? About the persons of the Trinity, in this book, which is not a popular book but intended for the Theology Guild, he does give some traditional hemming and hawing about what is meant by the term person and suggests that the meaning of person in God is three persons is different than anything we might normally mean when we use the term person in other contexts. A general problem that I have when I read this book, though, this other book called The Triune God, is that Dr. Sanders will quote other people without offering criticism, and it kind of suggests to the reader that he agrees with the people he's quoting, but he doesn't clearly commit to it. So he'll discuss things in a friendly manner and just move right on, and you're sort of left to conclude that he agrees, but then these things don't all fit together. He quotes the Catholic Council of Florence in 1439, and he ends up by saying, so precisely here, God is not one person, but three. On the next page, he quotes Wolfhart Pannenberg, saying that he is in himself the living God in the mutual relations of Father, Son, and Spirit, which sounds like a one-self trinity view. There's one God who has these distinctions within himself. He talks about the three persons as distinctions in which the one God subsists. Subsists? Like, exists as a substance? Okay, but what does that amount to? I honestly don't know. He quotes the Catholic Cardinal Newman as saying that the term divine person signifies a relation as subsistent. He does make the point that the term person is ad hoc in character. In other words, it's kind of arbitrary. It's just plucked out of normal usage and pressed into service for a special, unique theoretical reason. Right. Person is a technical term in these contexts. And that's why I put the question more in terms of, is he a one-self Trinitarian or a three-self Trinitarian, or does he think there are four? And in ordinary life, the way you judge whether someone thinks something is a person is whether they call it by personal pronouns, used literally. Of course, like all Christians, he always refers to God as a he and never as an it or a they. That suggests that he thinks that God is a self. Of course, he refers to the Father, Son, and Spirit, each individually as a he, and occasionally talking about two of them, they, so they seem like multiple selves. Again, in discussing the views of a theologian named Usher, Dr. Sanders says, a person of the Trinity, Usher says, quote, is whole God, not simply or absolutely considered, but by way of some personal properties. It is a manner of being in the Godhead, 
or a distinct subsistence, not a quality, as some have wickedly imagined. For no quality can cleave to the Godhead, having the whole Godhead in it. End quote. Again, he doesn't clearly own this, but he doesn't criticize it. So, so he also seems to think, like many theologians, that the term person doesn't exactly mean a self or doesn't imply being a self, or at any rate, the term person is really just unclear. And uh, maybe like Augustine says, we say three persons just so we don't say three something or others. So in some, he sounds like he thinks the Trinity is a self. He sounds like he thinks each person of the Trinity is a self. He issues standard disclaimers. Well, this isn't our ordinary concept of a person. It's a highly rarefied meaning. It's highly specialized. It's very difficult to say what it is. Maybe it's a subsistent relation, whatever that is. So he kind of raises a cloud of smoke about what the term person means when you talk about the three persons of the Trinity. Okay, fine, but look, lay aside the technical term person. I still observe him talking as if the Trinity is a self, and also talking as if the Trinity is, in some sense, three selves. And until we see how the Trinity relates to the persons of the Trinity, I don't have a position here to criticize. And if you say, well, the Trinity best explains what's in the Bible, I say, what best explains the Bible? We haven't got as far as having a clear theory here, which can be lined up against other interpretations and compared to see which one explains the evidence the best. So, honestly, that was frustrating. And part of the reason it's frustrating, as I mentioned last week, is that I know there are people who do actually make decisions about this. Some think that the Trinity is a conglomerate, which isn't a self, although it has selves as parts. That's what Swinburne thinks. That's basically what Hasker thinks as well. Some people, like Bart and Rahner, pretty clearly seem to think that God is the one self and that the persons are ways that one self is, essentially and eternally. Okay, that's a one self view. Our friend Chad McIntosh has published a piece in which he suggests that the members of the Trinity are three selves and that there's a different type of self, which the triune God is. So it's three of one kind of self or one kind of person and one of another kind of self or person. Okay. But anyway, let me veer back now to the deep things of God, leaving aside for the moment the professional book, The Triune God. Through the book, whenever somebody raises the question, you could call it the logical problem of the Trinity or the threeness-oneness problem, he sometimes will say, well, yeah, that's a good question. You might want to think about that sometime. That's important. He doesn't lift a finger to help you do that or give you sources that will help you do that, mind you. What he does every time he mentions it is he quickly changes the subject. And he's pretty clear in thinking that this is really a distraction and it's not something important to think about at least not most of the time. Maybe you got to think about it once or something, get it off the table, now get back to real, vivid, vital Trinitarianism. And so what he's fundamentally doing instead of resolving the problems is he's just decided to live with them. And he's decided that the apparent incoherence is not a bad thing. See, what I was doing when I was trying to discern what his position really was, was I was looking for a coherent, a seemingly self-consistent position. Why would I go and do a darn fool thing like that? Because it's what philosophers call the principle of charity. 
we expect others to interpret our words as saying something self-consistent, saying something coherent. We expect people to try to exhaust the coherent interpretations of our words before they just conclude that we're confused, that we're just contradicting ourselves. So we want that to be done to us, so we do it to others. We do this with philosophers all the time. The person seems to say P in chapter one and not P in chapter two. Then we say, oh, well, gee, I mean, maybe they just changed their mind or maybe they're just confused, but maybe there's a way to interpret these chapters where they're actually not contradictory. They're saying something that's coherent. Maybe the incoherence is just on the surface. And once we get past that, we'll see that it really does make sense. It really does seem to be self-consistent after all. Now, when you can't do this is when somebody just asserts up front and unequivocally that their position is seemingly incoherent. Dr. Sanders doesn't exactly do that. He'll occasionally speechify about, look, we can't just go around foisting contradictions. We can't just foist incoherence and nonsense on people. We've got to make some distinctions and try to defend this as coherent. And so he makes what I call the standard opening move. We're not saying that God is one of one thing and three of that same thing, because that would be a contradiction. We're saying rather that God is three persons in one being or one substance. Right. He does say that. That's a standard thing from apologetics circles. But then again, he seems to think that God is one person and God is three persons. And when he leans crucially on C.S. Lewis, Lewis's defense seems to presuppose that there really is an apparent incoherence there. And so the search for a coherent reading of what he's saying is wrongheaded. In the end, although he doesn't call it this, it's pretty clear that in the end, Dr. Sanders is what I call a positive mysterian. This is someone who thinks that the Trinity, properly understood, properly best expressed, seems incoherent. It seems to be self-contradictory. But that's okay because it's not really contradictory. So God is one person. Yes. God is three persons. Yes. Wait a second. Those, those don't go together. Those couldn't both be true, right? Well, that's how it seems. He agrees with that. No problem, though. C.S. Lewis to the rescue. So what is C.S. Lewis's answer to this serious problem of an apparent contradiction within one's theology? Here it is. Well, maybe it's coherent to God. Maybe God can see how it's coherent, how it could all possibly be true. Well, that's not much of a defense, is it? That would apply to absolutely any apparent contradiction. If I were to come along and say that the world exists and doesn't exist, you say, well, wh which is it, Tuggy? It can't be both. Oh, yes, it could be both. What? They couldn't both be true. Well, it seems to us that it couldn't be true that the world exists and the world doesn't exist. But maybe God can see that both are true. Maybe it doesn't appear incoherent to God. Well, maybe two plus two is five, which is to say, no, it doesn't seem possible at all. If it seems contradictory, then it would seem to be something God couldn't understand to be true. This gets us nowhere. This is why, if you read philosophers trying to defend belief in apparent contradictions, they don't really find C.S. Lewis helpful. It's not properly developed. It's not well argued. 
Don't put your trust in a half-baked piece of speculation. So is the gospel Trinitarian? Well, the gospel has to do with the triad. It has to do with God, His Son, His Spirit. Is any Christian Trinitarian? I'm a Christian, so I'm familiar with God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. Uh, it seems like kind of an abuse of words to call me a Trinitarian, though. So if the thesis is that the New Testament gospel has and has always had centrally to do with the Trinity, that is to say the triune God, that is false. The triune God doesn't come in for a mention in the New Testament. There is no term that refers to the triune God as such. And in my view, you can't derive a triune God from the scripture, although we could have a nice long argument about this. Obviously, a lot of apologists and other theologians think that you can. To me, the Trinity is straightforwardly an anachronism. It's a fourth century idea. Nobody in the first century has it. And so if you're finding it in the New Testament, you're just reading it into the New Testament. Has the New Testament gospel always obviously been about the triad? Sure. But that's not really a deep point. That's an uncontroversial truism. When the Trinity's podcast returns, something that really surprised me about Dr. Sanders' other book and how it compares with The Deep Things of God. thing that's important to biblical Unitarians is what we see as a conflict between later small c Catholic traditions and what the New Testament clearly teaches. It seems to us that the New Testament clearly identifies the one God as the Father and not as the Trinity. And in fact, the Trinity isn't mentioned and you can't derive the Trinity from the Bible or specifically from the New Testament. That's our view. Now, it's widely assumed in evangelical circles, as in other Christian circles, that, oh yes, you can argue from the Bible to the Trinity in some manner. If your chief concern is in what way is the Trinity biblical, you're going to be bitterly disappointed by the deep things of God, because he never actually tries to make the deduction. He does imply several times that it's very easy to establish that God is triune from the Bible. Oh yes, it's been done... I mean, that's just not in question, he thinks. Um, although sometimes he kind of waves his hands and kind of fakes it, is one way to put it. Page 246, he says this, Evangelicals tend to ask three questions about the Trinity. Is it biblical? Does it make sense? And does it matter? We've seen Lewis's answer to these questions. Yes, it's biblical. It's not explicitly formulated in the words of the text, but it's woven into the very structure of the history of salvation, which is what the Bible's about. Again, he's relating the views of another author, but I'm inferring that Dr. Sanders agrees with this as well. So, as far as what he's going to tell the layperson, the average Judy or Joe in the pew, he's going to tell them that, yes, the Trinity is just obviously biblical, it's just all over the place, 
And obviously it can be logically derived from scripture. And I guess I just assume that he takes the view that a lot of Christian philosophers take, which is just in the back of their mind, they've read some apologetics and some theologians, and they just have the impression, yes, there is an irrefutable argument there. They're not too clear on the details, but uh, I mean, come on, most Christians are Trinitarian, right? So it's got to be logically derivable from the Bible. Um, I mean, can't you just say the Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God, and there's only one God? Boom, they did it, right? Well, as I discuss in a chapter of my book, it's not nearly as simple as that. But anyway, what Christian philosophers do is just say, well, it's not my problem. It is just a widely known fact that the New Testament logically implies that God is tripersonal. It turns out that Dr. Sanders' view is a little bit different than that, but you don't get a hint of it in the deep things of God. Instead, he talks in quite a different vein in his professional book, The Triune God. Here's what Dr. Sanders says about proving the Trinity from the Bible. This starts on page 162 of The Triune God. Although there has been no change in the material content of the doctrine of the Trinity, the epochal shifts in biblical interpretation in the modern period have greatly altered the available arguments for Trinitarianism. Indeed, the doctrine of the Trinity stands today at a point of crisis with regard to its ability to demonstrate its exegetical foundation. Theologians once approached this doctrine with a host of biblical proofs, but one by one, many of those venerable old arguments have been removed from the realm of plausibility. The steady march of grammatical historical exegesis has tended in the direction of depleting Trinitarianism's access to its traditional equipment, until a prominent feature of the current era is the growing unpersuasiveness and untenability of the traditional proof texts that were used to establish and demonstrate the doctrine. And then skipping a few quotations, he continues, The presupposition has become widespread that the doctrine of the Trinity is a local phenomenon in the realm of systematic theology with no provenance in the territory of New Testament scholarship. Let me translate that into ordinary English for you. A lot of the traditional patristic arguments from the Bible to the Trinity are now thought to be junk arguments. And a lot of New Testament scholars just assume, well, the Trinity, the triune God, that's got nothing to do with the New Testament. If we want to understand the New Testament per se, just forget about these later ideas. They're not there. Yeah, okay, when you're doing systematic theology, well, that takes into account the Bible plus later Catholic traditions. Okay, yeah, fine, bring up the Trinity then in systematic theology, but look, we're doing New Testament work here. There's no Trinity in the New Testament. Oh, yeah. Guess who was saying this before the scholars in the academy were? Biblical Unitarians. Dr. Sanders continues, We may succeed in countering any particular taunt, and in raising objections to the hardening of categories that attends the overwhelming consensus of the guild. Nevertheless, a great deal of the assured results of modern scholarship in this area simply must be accepted, even when the result is the partial removal of the traditional way of demonstrating the exegetical foundation of Trinitarian theology. A complete catalog of examples would approach a survey of the entire discipline of biblical studies and its bearing on the doctrine of the Trinity. Perhaps no development in biblical studies has left the foundation of Trinitarianism unaffected. 
partly because the long Christian exegetical tradition has at various times delighted to find the Trinity in nearly every layer and every section of Scripture. If the doctrine of the Trinity had come to be at home in every verse of the Bible, it was more or less implicated in revisionist approaches to every verse. At any rate, the overall trend of sober, historical grammatical labors has been toward the gradual removal of the Trinitarian implications of passage after passage. Now, what's he talking about? The only example he gives immediately right there in that context is 1 John 5, 7, which is really very old news. Since the time of Erasmus, we've known that that verse doesn't belong in the text of 1 John. It's not in the Greek manuscripts. That's old news. What other kind of thing does he have in mind? Probably a lot of things. Here's an example I'm aware of, and I think, I could be wrong, but I think that Dr. Sanders would agree with this. When I started to raise questions about how do you get the Trinity out of the Bible back in the early 2000s, a couple of people told me, no names, they just informally asserted to me that anytime you see God in the Bible and there isn't something specific about the context that would require that to mean just the Son or just the Father or just the Spirit, whenever you see God just unadorned, then that's to be read as the Trinity, right? Because the one God is the Trinity. So if it doesn't specify that it's talking about one member of the Trinity, it must just mean the whole Trinity. All biblical scholars think this is dead wrong. There's a famous essay by Karl Bronner, the big Roman Catholic scholar of the 20th century and famous Trinitarian theologian, and he talks about the use of theos in the New Testament. And bottom line, Theos almost always means the Father in the New Testament, more than 99% of the time. And in the remaining few cases, it means the Son, arguably. Some of these are difficult cases. Another major study, a book-length study, was done by an evangelical scholar named Murray Harris. Bottom line, the word God almost always means the Father, and in a small handful of cases can be argued to refer to the Son Okay, but what's glaring by its absence there is the use of God to mean the Trinity, which is the first thing you would expect if somebody is a Trinitarian. How could you be a Trinitarian and not have a term to refer to the Trinity? How can you not have a term that's understood to refer to the three of them together, to the tripersonal God? So maybe that's one of his examples. I take it there would be many dozens of other examples. But what percentage of the arguments have we lost? Have we only lost 10% of the traditional arguments for the Trinity? Or have we lost 90% or 50%? He doesn't say, I guess it would be difficult to enumerate all of them. But he gives you the impression that it's a substantial bulk of them, uh, enough to really disturb one's theological mindset. A little bit later in this chapter, page 179, Dr. Sanders says this, There is something disconcerting in maintaining a doctrine while replacing many of the arguments for it. If Trinitarian theology can arise using one set of arguments, but then discard many of those and set about seeking better ones by which to maintain its claims, does this imply that Trinitarians intend to go on believing what they are believing no matter what? The Stoic philosopher Chrysippus described his philosophical approach in the words, You give me the doctrines, and I will invent the proofs. 
Proof switching could signal that a system of orthodoxy is functioning like what Marxist analysis calls an ideology. A set of power relationships concealed behind ideas that really defend them by rationalization. Proof switching could also, however, be an example of renegotiating the justified part of what epistemology sets forth as the definition of knowledge, justified true belief. We all have many beliefs. Some of them are true. Some of those are justified. A belief can continue to be true during the phase when a thinker has rejected one justification for it and is casting about for another. The thinker cannot demonstrate its truth during this phase, but that is the whole point of pursuing convincing arguments. Buildings that have always stood firm can, on inspection, be found to have less than optimal support and undergo seismic retrofitting without ever coming down. After the tectonic shifts of biblical criticism, Trinitarian theology is due for some seismic retrofitting. Wow. So, when writing for the popular audience, you say, yes, the Trinity's obviously in the Bible. What could be more obvious? The Trinity's just everywhere there. Of course, it can be decisively shown that the Bible is Trinitarian. But now when we're in the guild, so to speak, behind closed doors, although it's not like this is a secret, Apparently, he thinks a Trinitarian should be in crisis mode, thinking, wow, I mean, our arguments are mostly gone now, or at least a large bulk of them are, and we need to get ourselves some new arguments so we can continue to be Trinitarian. Well, as he says, that's a little funny. I mean, why wouldn't you take a further step and just decide to re-examine your position all over again and decide if the Trinity's really right, given that so many of the traditional arguments have now fallen away by the light of increased understanding. Dr. Sanders continues that last passage I quoted, but there is a deeper explanation for why it is legitimate to transfer our allegiance to another set of arguments while continuing to affirm the original doctrine, an explanation that has to do with the unique character of the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinitarian theology is a complex discourse based on an insight into the overall meaning of Scripture. The Church Fathers, as the earliest theologians to discern its truth, draw it out of the scriptural materials, and render it explicit, did their work in the light of a profound spiritual apprehension of the subject matter itself. They were aware of God's own triune presence to them as they scanned the texts and labored to formulate what they understood in it. They did not claim that their utterances were divinely inspired, but they did acknowledge that in the interpretive relationship between res and signa, that is between the thing and the sign, or the language about the thing, the thing itself was impinging upon them as they sifted through the signs. We are saving the Trinity, wrote Gregory of Nazianzus, and by the Trinity can be saved. His sharp transition from the doctrine he was arguing for to the God he was serving shows his awareness of theologizing in the presence of the triune God. Okay, there's a kind of chutzpah there. Right? No matter how bad a crisis the biblical interpretation falls into, no matter how dodgy the arguments turn out to be from the Bible to the Trinity, we're going to fall back on our spiritual experience do we really have experience of God as three hypostases and one usia? Is that, my Christian friend, part of your experience? Is the Trinity 
that God is tri-personal, is that part of the content of your experience? I don't think it's ever been part of mine. And when I listen to other Christians talk about their spiritual experiences, they generally fall into the category of sensing the presence of God, which they describe as the experience of the Spirit. And then occasionally, sometimes Jesus will appear to a person in a dream or a vision. Well, that's different. That's somebody else than God. Christian experience, I think, is actually Unitarian friendly if you actually look at what people actually say. It's relatively rare to have some mystic come along and claim that they've discerned the triunity of God in some spiritual experience. Of course, Dr. Sanders doesn't think there's anything special about him. He thinks that all Christians have always had this experience of God as triune. I'm sorry, but I don't think the historical evidence bears this out. He talks about the earliest theologians to explicitly formulate the Trinity. These are people in the 300s. I wouldn't call them early Christians any more than I would call Dr. Sanders and I early Americans. They ain't that early. They've come on quite a ways from the first century and even from the second century. When you look at the first three centuries of Christianity, you don't have anybody explicitly talking about a triune God. And when you look carefully, you realize you don't have anybody implicitly talking about a triune God either. Well, that suggests that theory is making us read a little bit too much into our experience. So to me, building a core Christian doctrine on this type of appeal to experiences is to build one's house on sand. Why not build it on the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of Jesus according to them? Because there is a clash. One thing the book has me really curious about, by the way, is, okay, well, which arguments have now been discarded and which arguments are left? What sort of arguments are left? Are they traditional arguments at all? Or are they just ones that we've come up with? Things about Jesus being in the identity of the one God and things like that. I don't know. I mean, it seems like a rather pressing question. I think Dr. Sanders is right that if you have a strong conviction, just because the evidence for it is undercut doesn't mean you should immediately change it. I think he's right that we should be conservative and be very cautious in changing beliefs. And before you go and change some belief that's central to your life, you ought to go looking for more evidence and really go into search mode again. I mean, how long can you sit back just congratulating yourself for how spiritual you are and having discerned this fact for which the evidence has mostly evaporated? It looks like you can't do that very long. So I'd like to know what he thinks the resurrected Trinity proofs from the Bible are. And I'd like to weigh those arguments and compare them for the arguments from the Bible to Unitarian Christian theology. I think he should summarize his view of this crisis of biblical interpretation and put it back in the popular book. I mean, this seems like something the person in the pew should know about. You don't want the person in the pew ignorantly offering proofs from the Bible to the Trinity that any scholar will just debunk as wrong-headed as reading later ideas back into earlier texts. May I suggest then an additional chapter for edition three of The Deep Things of God? When the Trinity's podcast returns, some book recommendations.
Obviously, I don't think this is a good book. I don't recommend it. What do I recommend for a first book about the Trinity? I think my own book, What is the Trinity?, will enable you to navigate this territory. I focus on basically 10 distinctions or indisputable truths, which I think will help you to navigate between all the various speculations in this area. I talk a little bit about the known history. I discuss different meanings of the key terms, God, usia, hypostasis, or person. I quote from the relevant councils and so on, and I kind of lay out the options and I tell you where I stand without really arguing for it. I focus more on the history and a little bit on the Bible. I don't get into all the whole world of theological writing on these topics. I'm, of course, writing as an analytic theologian and as a biblical Unitarian. If you want to see a more thorough and in some ways more accurate take by a Trinitarian Protestant theologian, you might want to check out The Quest for the Trinity, The Doctrine of God and Scripture, History, and Modernity by Dr. Stephen R. Holmes. I interviewed Dr. Holmes about this book way back in podcasts 42 and 43, so if you want to hear him talk about it first and then read the book, you can do that. This is a very different book than Sanders. Holmes enthusiastically embraces the late 4th century thinking by people like the Cappadocian Fathers and Augustine, and to him that is just the definition of true Trinitarian theology. He talks about the recent supposed Trinitarian revival, and he commits to things like divine simplicity. He really thoroughly embraces the Catholic tradition, the small-c Catholic tradition, and you'll get a better idea of what it's really about from this book, and it's still written at an accessible level. Myself, I have plenty of disagreements with the biblical interpretation here, and to some extent with the history here. But it's going to give you much more of an entry into recent theology and historical theology about the Trinity than is Sanders' book. And it's not pitched to only evangelicals. It's just for Christians, though it is in fact published by the Inner Varsity Press. If you're the kind of evangelical that's impatient, you don't really want to go through all this historical muckety-muck, and you want to just get down to the Bible, yeah, but what's the right understanding of the Bible? Okay, but it's going to be a lot less Trinitarian in the sense of having to do with the Trinity as opposed to the triad than you might expect. What I recommend is a triple-authored book called One God and One Lord, Reconsidering the Cornerstone of the Christian Faith. And this is a book by Biblical Unitarians. You want to hear the Trinitarian side of it? Pick up any book by an evangelical apologist. You want to hear the other side of it by Protestants who think that Trinity theories clash with the Bible? Here you go. Pretty much every text from which people try to derive a triune God is discussed in this book in a very level-headed and in most cases convincing way. A lot of the arguments really turn to dust when you grasp them firmly. It's kind of disturbing. But there you go. Just look at the actual biblical arguments directly and then study the issue further using the help of historians and textual scholars people who are qualified to help you interpret ancient writings as they were meant to be read. I take the view that the ordinary Christian in the pew does not need to be protected from sources that are going to disagree. The more confident you are of your case, the more confident you should be in actually reading what the other side says, actually studying what the other side says. 
of course, always, always using the common sense that God gave you and using it carefully and with the Bible in one hand, being a good Berean who's going to test what he's being told by religious teachers to see if the scriptures really say what that teacher is saying the scriptures say. On this topic, I say, go deep. Don't believe someone who's going to come along and tell you that you're already as deep into this as you need to be. Not likely. It's important to get some clarity on this topic. So keep working. Don't be impressed by flattery. Keep loving God with your whole mind. This week's thinking music has been Latinem by Drake Stafford. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.